18 months and counting into the COVID pandemic. And in the United States, we have three highly effective vaccines. The initial rollout of the vaccines were problematic and there were months when they were in short supply. But today, these life-saving vaccines are widely and easily available. And yet many people refuse to take the COVID vaccines. The number of shots administered per week has plummeted. Some vaccination sites have been shut down because so few people are showing up. Should more states emulate California and Ohio in giving out million dollar lottery prizes as incentives for vaccination? And is it true, as some people argue, that to overcome the pandemic, we need vaccine mandates? How should we evaluate the situation and the proposed remedies? That's our topic today on the New Ideal podcast. Welcome. I'm Ilan Jerno, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Ankar Gatte. Ankar, welcome. Hi, Ilan. Good to be here. I think uh, the, the best place to start is just to look at where are we in the pandemic. So I want to turn that over to you. Where do you think we are uh, 18 months in? My view is that if we're speaking about the U.S., not globally, but about the U.S., the pandemic is over. Um, and that can sound startling because COVID-19 uh, is still here. But so is the flu, for instance. And we don't think every year flu season, we're in a pandemic. And though there can be a pandemic level of the flu when you have something super contagious and super deadly. But the fact that we now have um, highly effective vaccines, as you said, and we have a set of highly effective vaccines and more being developed, and they're widely available, mostly for no cost. Um, I mean, I didn't pay anything when I got the COVID, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, and that's the norm. So you have highly effective vaccine widely available. And the fact that some people are not taking the vaccine doesn't mean the pandemic continues. It just means you have people not taking the vaccine. In the same way, for instance, with the flu vaccine, you have people who don't take it year to year, and some people religiously take it every year. But that the fact that there's people who are not vaccinated does not mean now that you're still in a pandemic. And I think with the U.S., I mean, it's a, it's a success story of our private companies able to develop these vaccines in such a quick amount of time, in such little amount of time, that 18 months in, as you said, and now, I mean, when you look at the number of cases, when you look at the graphs of the number of cases in the U.S. and number of daily deaths, they're both plummeting. Um, I mean, they're bell-shaped curves. And that's as a result, when you look at the time frame, uh, basically of the vaccine, I think. I mean, learning how to treat COVID better, but largely the vaccine. So a few, months ago, a few months ago, you wrote a, a position paper for the Institute on how a, a free society would approach a pandemic like the COVID-19 situation and what we might do in the future. And one of the things you argued in it is that in the context of a pandemic, government's responsibility is, should be highly circumscribed legally. And one of the main functions the government should take on is to test, track, and isolate people carrying whatever infectious disease that is rampant and, and so forth. So are you saying that given where we are, that is no longer what you would say the government should be doing right now? Yeah, I'm skeptical even that it should be doing that now. And again, the comparison to the flu is relevant. It's not to say COVID-19 is just the flu, but you have to think it's not the only infectious disease that we face um, and that we have to learn to deal with and that you have to make decisions every year about. And the flu is another one like that. And the, there is a vaccine, but the vaccine is not anywhere close to 100% effective. Flu can, I mean, for most people, it's you lose a few days of work if you get it, the, the flu, um, but it that's not the only kind of scenario. There's people who are hospitalized from the flu who have a lot of complications if they have other conditions like asthma, um, and they can be fairly long-lasting um, suffering from that, and there's death from the flu. And yet we don't think every year during flu season the government should be testing, tracking, and isolating the people who are carrying the flu. It's just, this is part of living in a uh, society that there's this kind of risk 
you can live in lower density areas of the country if you're really scared of this stuff. So you can take various kinds of precautions, including the vaccine. But we don't think of it as it's the job of the government to now find who's carrying the flu and to quarantine them. And I suspect that COVID now is in the US again, not everywhere in the world. But in the US, it's more like that now. The vaccines aren't 100% effective, but they're much more effective than the flu vaccine for instance. Yeah, so. one way I've heard of this described, um, our, our friend uh, Dr. Amish Adalja was talking in another context about how what the vaccines have been able to do is to decouple the, the spread of the disease from people who having to go to hospital because of it, because the vaccines keep you from, in many cases, from having a serious, infect, serious disease and, and, and uh, death. So I want to get into this issue because there are a lot of misconceptions about what was what we're trying to do as a society in terms of the so-called flattening the curve uh, goal and with all the lockdowns which we've posed and so forth. So one of the things that you wrote about in your article is that there's the whole issue of what should happen in, a, in the context of a, a pandemic like this is really muddied by the fact that the healthcare system is so controlled. So we live in a society, uh, the US is less controlled than other countries like Canada or the United Kingdom, but it's very controlled. And that affects what can be done in that context. So just help us untangle, what does it look like for a healthcare system to look free, totally free? And what, what might uh, hospitals or doctors or, or just the whole system, how might it react to a pandemic? And what does that look like? And again, contrast it to what we've seen now and what that looks like. I think a good way to frame that kind of discussion is to think, so what, why it really matters if we have relative freedom in medicine or in healthcare, or it's relatively government control. And I think of the US system today, people talk about it, it's like we've got freedom in medicine, but it's, there is certainly still some freedom in medicine, but it is heavily government controlled. It's a few steps from being socialized completely. Um, and, and the direction that healthcare has moved in the US over the last 50 years is more and more government control, getting closer and closer to it's just a government run system. And in that sense, it's socialized. If, like, why is this issue so important? I think to just put it at an individual level. So the, what our topic basically is today is, should you care that other people aren't vaccinated? And if you think of that, at the individual level, and if you right now bracket the way healthcare is government run, if you, if you just imagine it was like other things when you buy a car or you buy a house, it's like an individual decision. It's not uh, paid for by, or subsidized by the government. You have to make decisions about that. You have to make hundreds of these kinds of decisions every day in your life. And in that context, why would you care that someone's not vaccinated? Well, if, obviously, if it's somebody you care about, if it's a family member or friend, and you think, look, there's not good reason for why the he doesn't have some condition that makes it, say, immune, he's immune compromised, that it, there's real issues about what will a vaccine do. And so leave aside some kind of medical issue that it's just the person either can't be bothered or is, has read a few things online and thinks that, why should I get it? Doesn't think the vaccine's effective. What you would do, and what you do do, I mean, I've, I've done this with people who I think you probably should get the vaccine, and you're too, you're um, skeptical about it for not good reason. You talk to them about it, you argue with them, and you try to convince them, no, like given your conditions, given the nature of the disease, given the vaccine, you should get vaccinated. And you could think more widely at a societal level that, yeah, I mean, I don't want to see people as I'm walking around dropping dead or all of a sudden this person is no longer here because they're in the hospital and three weeks later you find that they're dead. They might not be friends or relatives or something like that, but they're fellow members of your community and of your society. And if, again, if you think there's bad ideas that are circulating that are causing people not to get the vaccine, it's again, it would be a campaign of you're trying to persuade and you're trying to convince them. You're, trying, you're giving them the reasons why they should get the vaccine. And that's to the extent that you would care. And even 
so now with a contagious disease and a vaccine that's not 100% effective, there are reasons to um, care somewhat about, I mean, when you, we're both vaccinated. When you go to the mall or you go to the grocery store, yeah, other things equal, I would prefer that all the customers have got vaccinated. But I don't think the danger is very high from unvaccinated people for people who've got the vaccine. Um, and so it's, it's more like I would prefer people if they had the flu that they stay home and they don't come to the grocery store. But I know when I go out in January, there's going to be once in a while someone who has the flu who's at the store. And it's, yeah, I don't like that. But the idea that it's I'm going to run to the government and try to stop it, I don't think that it doesn't rise to the level of the kind of danger the person represents that that I think it would warrant doing that. So when you look at it from that context, it's, there's not much reason to care. But if it's, well, they're going to overwhelm the healthcare system and I've got cancer and my test is going to be delayed or I'm worried I have cancer and a test is going to be delayed because the, the hospital's too preoccupied with treating COVID people who haven't been vaccinated. And so then you start to care about it. Or if it's the costs are going to be enormous and my taxes are going to go up to pay for all of this, then you start to care. And it's understandable that you start to care. But that's a result of the fact that it's been socialized or collectivized, that these are no longer just individual decisions. I have to pay for somebody else's health care. And they look at me and say, oh, I have to pay for yours. And then it's you become more and more preoccupied. And if you think about it rightly, it's not just vaccines. Like, what is that person eating? If they're eating junk food all the time and so and don't look after their health, that imposes costs on me in a socialized system. And you start to become more and more preoccupied with what other people are doing. And that's an argument against it being socialized and collected. This is one of the things that's really bad about it. It's no longer, you don't have individual control over your life. Now it really matters to you that your neighbor is not vaccinated or not um, is, is smoking. And you're going to have to pay for that. I think another element of why there, because I, I, one motivation I had for talking about this is that I think, coupled with the idea that so much of healthcare is socialized and it's become collectivized in how we think about it, the other issue closely related is that in some places, the lockdowns and the restrictions are, are tied to levels of vaccination. So I, I was just in visiting uh, relatives in Canada and they had set certain thresholds. We'll reopen, we'll allow certain more activities once we get to whatever percentage of the population gets the first dose and then the second dose will be at th another threshold. And I can see in that context, if you're saying to people, you can't open your business until so many people in your community have gotten the vaccine. I can see why it's, it's the same sort of thing. Like, what are they having for dinner every night? Are they eating junk food? Are they, why are they not getting vaccinated? Because that affects my freedom and my ability to run my life. And, and I think that's, it's a real distortion because in this, where we are now, I mean, it's not to talk about where we were six months ago or even a year ago, but it's, if you're, tying people together in that way, I can see why the, the, the focus on other people's vaccination rate would be so high. Because if you ask me, do I want California where I live now to, to go back to where it was six months ago? Absolutely not. And I would go around and knock on all my neighbor's doors and get them to get vaccinated if that made a difference. Yeah. And it, it's, um, we've talked about this in other uh, podcast about government should now have the power to we have these lockdowns and these state and countrywide lockdowns. Yeah, and then if you tie it to the vaccination rate, and particularly, I think Canada's a little different in that they just have had fewer vaccines available, even if you want it. I mean, you can't buy them, but even if you wanted to, you can't. Whereas when it, it's particularly perverse, when it's at the level of the person just said says no, you're going to lock, keep everybody locked down because you've got people saying, no, I'm not going to take the vaccine or maybe I'll think about it and maybe I'll come back in two months. Yeah, that is, it's so perverse. That, and you could understand it at the level of the person thinking, okay, we have to mandate this. Like if my alternatives are I'm locked down until 
we can convince 80% of the population to take the vaccine or we're going to mandate it. You're sympathetic to the person saying, okay, well, you have to mandate it if you're going to keep me locked down. Well, let's turn to that issue now, the, the way in which uh, state and local governments and even cities are, are approaching this issue and what they describe, what they think of as the remedy. And, and that is, as we said at the beginning, it's to incentivize people who haven't been vaccinated yet to go and, and get the jab and get the second jab if they need one. And this was really, for me, the trigger of why I wanted to talk about it. Because I, I thought that the, I mean, it was, in, in many of the news reports, this was presented as, oh, isn't this cute and funny and, and people are enterprising. And so some of the things that uh, cities are doing or states are doing, uh, offering free fries at Shake Shack, offering free donuts, free beer. One place is offering free marijuana, uh, popcorn at the movie theaters, tokens to go and play video games. And in the bigger ones that you, I think people probably heard about, a lottery uh, in Ohio, a major lottery in Ohio, and then in California, another a slightly bigger lottery with various prizes, million dollar plus prizes, plus fifty dollar cash cards, and, and and a whole ladder of of incentives for people to to go out, get vaccines, and uh, move the num move the the trend lines, and my reaction wasn't this is cute. My reaction was very negative. And it was, so this was a couple of months ago when I first got wind of this. And it was, first of all, there's, there's a real blending of who's giving the incentive. And is this, you know, if, if Chipotle says you can show up with your vaccine card and get free guacamole, that then it's completely their decision to do that. I can see a way in which you won't, you want to encourage people who come to your restaurant to be vaccinated. It's better for you. I mean, it's safer for all the people who show up. But some of these are really blended where I can see the state or the city encouraging or pressuring some, some companies and saying, look, help us out, you know, donate some of these things or, or, or be part of our program, where it's private companies working through this, the state working through private companies or, or directly the state doing these lotteries and, and cash giveaways. And part of my reaction to this was, I know there are, there's a subset of people that have, they can't necessarily get the vaccine. So I can understand they have to wait or maybe they just, their health conditions are not such. But to me, it was so uh, strange that with the wide availability of the vaccines and where we were a few months ago, that you would, people would not be lining up to get the vaccine and that you would need to encourage them with, with all these carrots. Uh, it, it was really strange and, and start and annoying that this would be really there are people who having lived through the pandemic and knowing that the vaccines would bring your life back to normal that that they were still reluctant to do it given how much data we know about the the safety and the efficacy of these things and then on top of this is so the one one element is just people not wanting to get vaccinated when there's so many benefits to doing that and, and it's their decision. I'm not, I'm not going to uh, browbeat them, but it, that and then rewarding the people who are refusing to get vaccinated, incentivizing them with taxpayer uh, funds. I, I just thought this was really not at all what I would expect the government to be doing at this point. And I think it's a good example, even if, so I, I was, annoyed or maybe even a little stronger outraged by these kind of things and I think a number of people are and were they can't always figure out like what exactly and what fundamentally is really putting me off here that is really I find upsetting or disturbing but I think it just is an instance of the fact that a collectivized socialized system ties people together so the the value and indeed the, the, it's an irreplaceable value of living in a free society is precisely that you live your life on your own terms you deal with the people you want to deal with when you think they're good and when you think it's valuable to deal with them, you deal with them. When you don't think it is, you go your separate ways. And that's not just that they get their level of employment 
It's about who your friends are, who you socialize with, who you deal with, who you avoid. And a, a socialized or collectivized system ties you together. And it ties you together in a way that deliberately makes no distinction between the rational people or the irrational people, the productive people and the unproductive people. And so here it's, yeah, you're paying people for the fact that they either um, couldn't be bothered to get the vaccine or have fallen prey to various kinds of conspiracy theories about vaccines. And the government literally is taking your money and giving it to them to try to induce them to get the vaccine. And it's, you have no choice about that. It's, 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 um, it would be one thing. So like something like social security is portrayed as we're all working and paying into the system. And then at the, when we retire, we'll take it out. And it seems like it's earned. Um, now it's not actually, I mean, they give money to people who haven't paid in or haven't paid in very much. And so, so it is a redistribution scheme, but it's disguised as we're all have earned this. In this case, it's so obvious that these people have not earned the money that they're, and whether it's like a trivial amount of things, they're getting free donuts or they're getting paid a million dollars from a, they haven't earned this. And indeed they've taken things that you would view it as they don't deserve it. And they're getting it because they don't deserve it. And that is, but that's the essence of what a socialized or collectivized system is. That's the whole reason that they're, they're uh, propagating is to give people the unearned. So I, I have to share this because it, when I was researching this issue, it really leapt out at me. So this is, I was wondering who are the people that are tr the, the state authorities in this case in California are trying to incentivize? What, what, do they, what do the authorities think are the stumbling blocks or the, the barriers that are preventing people from coming? And you, 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 might, you mentioned some of the reasons people might have. They might be pulled into some conspiracy thinking or they're not really aware of what's going on. So the, these are the words of uh, Los Angeles County Public Health Director. Her name is Barbara Ferrer. And she was explaining why they're doing this uh, program in California, which involved a lottery plus other various kinds of incentives at different levels of, of financial cost. So she says, and I'm quoting here, if there's a way to help nudge people who are still just waiting to get vaccinated because it hasn't been the most convenient time, or they haven't had time to schedule it, we're hoping that these thank you gifts remind them how important it is to come in, close quote. And I, I, just to make this a bit personal, I remember when the vaccines became available. And I was looking at the vaccine websites and trying to figure out what, what are the qualifications? Do, do I qualify? Does my wife qualify? When will my children be able to get this? And thinking I would pay money to get the vaccine when it was, just came on the market. And I would have stood in line. I would have done so many things had it been possible and free. And now the, the state of California is catering to people who we're in July, mid-July now, the tail end of what this pandemic has done, and they can't find the time to show up at a drive-in vaccination site. Or they, it's so easy now. And I remember when I got my vaccine, it was not easy at all to get. get the, and now it's just the easiest thing. It's, it's as, as easy as getting the flu shot practically. And this is the, this is and, and it to me it was they're catering to the kind of person that I don't respect. I just don't, these are the sort of people that. What if you, the pandemic has given people a lot of time, whether they wanted it or not, and they, you don't have time to go and get a vaccine now? Okay, so that's, that's my diatribe on it. But, but that's, again, it, it's when you put it at the wider level, that it, it's so the government simultaneously prevents you from getting a vaccine that you would pay for that you would go and buy on the market and they say no we can't have a market in vaccines and you can't get uh you can't pay for it i mean it took me um because of the categories i fall in two months about later than my wife to get it and i for sure would have paid to get it so it simultaneously prevents me from doing it and takes my money to give it to the person who um doesn't deserve it and that is the 
people feel that even if they can't give full expression to it and say like this in terms of a political system this is how it's operating they feel it it's similar to the um the onset of the tea party when the government was bailing out people and their mortgages and it, and it was clear that there was a rampant amount of people in investing i mean they're not investing they're buying houses hoping that the government will keep this bubble going and when the bubble pops it's oh can you bail us out and people responded again to that like there's something really wrong here and even if they can't put it in terms of the whole political system they're rightly responding to some um significant injustice and there's another there's another aspect that i find particularly galling right now and it's the juxtaposition of two things so part of the this kind of government attitude you can put it as in terms of thinking of it as a, as the system it's pater, it's paternalism so it's the government as your parent and the flip side is the government is viewing you like an 8 year old who yeah you're just not competent to figure out what to do and whether you should take a vaccine or not and when you should take it and so on. so we're going to tell you when to do it and that's appropriate for an 8 year old when a parent is looking after the, or helping to look after the 8 year old's health but the american system of government is premised on exactly the opposite it's premised on adults are capable of being adults a representative system is you're capable and therefore should have the power to choose your representatives and we simultaneously have this big kind of political uh debate and conflicts think of what's happening in texas about expanding or contract i mean that's how it's put expanding or contracting the vote and if you think that people cannot make decisions about whether they should get a vaccine in a pandemic you want to bring them the vote so they're bring they they're going to vote for representatives in government so it the it's the, the the those two together that it's they're making a big outcry about uh people that need more power to be able to vote and yet oh yeah of course when it comes to their health and vaccines we're going to mandate what they have to do and we're going to tell everybody what to it's so perverse um and it's so un-american in terms of what the american system of government is i, I want to acknowledge we we received a number of support uh, the contributions through super chat thank you and we're we're going to get to questions in a little moment a little while uh, uh so we'll we'll try to get as many of those in as we can i wanted to turn to another topic that feeds out of the, the point you just raised which is So on the one hand it, there are efforts to incentivize people to go and get the vaccine and then now there's other so the the flip side of this is well that's not working and the trend line's still going down and what we actually need are quote unquote mandates and and so one of the positions put forward there was a piece in the New York Times recently by Dr. Aaron Carroll who works at Indiana University as their chief health officer and he's a commentator on health issues at the New York Times. So he's argued that it's unlikely the US can overcome the pandemic without having a vaccine mandate of some kind. And you know the, the, in his view there are people like carrots but sometimes you need to use sticks and that's that's a paraphrase of his argument. Now another voice that's come out suggesting that we need some sort of vaccine requirements or mandates is Anthony Fauci last week he he said he thinks there need to be more of these at the local level so i want to get into what is being argued here and i think one important point to to bring up and put on the table is it's not clear what's being meant by a mandate in some of these cases because some of the when people talk about the mandates it, they're blending things that i think need to be clearly differentiated so if so i think one clear example that i don't think should be thought of as a mandate is if you know if the institute where where we're employed said in order to come back to work at the office you need to show that you've been vaccinated that's a condition of employment just as it's there are many other conditions of employment that we abide by i don't think that's a mandate that's just a, it's a voluntary relationship there's a new condition that's been imposed and i think i mean i would argue that that is 
you should think of that as part of an adjustment in the relationship and you can reassess is that still the sort of thing you want to have that's one kind of case and it's and, and people are thinking of this as a mandate which i think is a mistake another kind of case is the sort of things we saw with the masks in california there was a mask mandate uh, that it was imposed and that was the state saying in these places you need to wear a mask or and now it would be you you have to get a, a vaccine and I think that's very different because you can walk away and say, I don't want to be employed by a place that requires me to get this vaccine. That might be a decision you make. But you can't say, I don't want to, I don't want to abide by the state mandate because the state is backed by coercive power. And I think that's a very different context. It's not a voluntary condition. And when people are saying we need vaccine requirements or mandates, they're blurring all of these together. So it's, well, it's, colleges are doing it and employers are doing it and that's good. And, and then retail stores, well, we don't know if they can do it, but maybe they should do it. And then maybe local governments should do it for, for local uh, buildings and so on. So I, I think that it, it, just to step back from this, how do you think of a mandate? And, and do, you, do you agree with my differentiation, first of all? Do you think this is it's helpful to see these as separate and distinct? And then I want to get to some elements that might be, if that's right, then there, I think there are some edge cases or, or things that are, are hard to distinguish. So do you think that's a, a fair way to distinguish them? Yes. So I think this is, you say they're blurring things together that should be separated. The way Ayn Rand calls this is it's a package deal. Um, it's packaging into one thing, things that uh, are superficially similar but fundamentally different. And you need to pay attention to the fundamental difference, not the superficial similarity. So in this case, the similarity is um, that in both cases, a person can experiences, experience it as it's take it or leave it. So if, our, if ARI as our employer said, look, from now on um, to come to the office, you have to be vaccinated. And if you're not, we're gonna part ways. And it's, it would, this is not a negotiation. Like this is a condition of employment. That's experienced as a take it or leave it. And if the government says, um, look, you have to get a vaccine by this date, by the end of October, you have to be vaccinated or else that's also a take it or leave it. But what the leave it means is fundamentally different. In the case of uh, an employer and a private transactions, leave it just means go live your own life without me. It's, I'm not employing you, you're not coming to the office, go if you find some other place that, that doesn't have a vaccine requirement and that's the condition of employment, yeah, go work there. So leave it means just go leave your own life. The, the government's leave it is not go live your own life, it's I'm gonna put you in jail or I'm going to fine you. And that's fundamentally different. That's why when you say it's coercive, yeah, it's fundamentally different and you can't view both of these as mandates. and it's so perverse that the government not only is hinting or more than hinting, I mean, people kind of advocating for that we need to coercively mandate. So a government mandate means it's coercively enforced. It's simultaneously in various places is either prohibiting or strongly discouraging private um, companies and so on from having any kind of requirements like this. Like, so the, of saying that you have to be vaccinated and you can't come to the office if you're not. And so to say, no, private people can't do this. This is the uh, government to decide this. And so it's from both directions, what is going on now, I think is bad. That the government is suggesting more and more, or there's more and more people suggesting government should coercively mandate this and simultaneously taking out the power from private people to decide this for their own and for how they want to run their stores and their businesses uh, and so on. Uh, and it applies to masks, it applies to vaccines, it applies to all kinds of things. I mean, I, 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 I'm still getting comfortable with the fact that as someone is vaccinated, I can be without a mask in California. The, the mask requirement went down when I was out of the state and I came back and the first place I went to, there were no people with no masks. And I thought, what just happened? It was very strange. And, but I would, you know, I can see if I had a retail establishment or a restaurant or something like that, I could see wanting to say, 
you can book a table at my restaurant if you prove that you're vaccinated, you get to eat inside and everyone else has to eat outside or I'm not gonna serve you if you're not vaccinated. I wanna be able to make those dis distinctions and, and I can see people wanting to go to a place that does make those distinctions. I would be more comfortable if I knew everyone in the restaurant were vaccinated and I would, I would be, maybe I'd even pay a premium to do that. But, but I think it was, I think it was in Florida, they, uh, or maybe it was somewhere else, I forget where it was, but they, they as you put it, they, they told private establishments, you can't make these requirements. We're not gonna let you uh, do that. And to me, that is uh, really frustrating because there, there's so many activities that you would wanna be able to do that are still restricted that you could do if you could isolate just those people who are much safer to be around and that people would choose to be in those contexts. I wanted to talk a bit more about mandates because, uh, so you're emphasizing the fundamental difference about what happens when you face this alternative, either you go along with it or we part ways or there's an or else kind of, and with the government you said it, it's, it's it, the or else is fundamentally different, so it's coercive. So I think it would be useful here to talk a bit more about mandates and is it, is there a context in which it's legitimate for government to impose a mandate for a vaccination? Like what, what conditions? And I, I think it'd be useful to talk a bit more about Ayn Rand's view about this issue because she, she answered a question about this in a talk or after a talk that she gave many years ago. So maybe you can tell me, how do you think about the issue of a mandate for a vaccination? Like maybe abstracting from this context or maybe in this context too. Um. Yeah, in, in this, I mean, the basic context is that, and we talked about this earlier in the podcast, it's that the person not vaccinated and who chooses not to become vaccinated to get the vaccine is jeopardizing their own health. That, that's the fundamental. And the person who is vaccinated is protecting his own health, but he's protected from the person who's now a carrier. So the fundamental is this person is risking their own health. Um, and it doesn't have to be that they're gonna die, but they might get COVID, they might get complications for it. In a free society, it would be, you'd have to pay. Um, if you have insurance, your insurance premiums might go up. If your insurance company finds that, well, you didn't get the vaccine um, and then you get COVID and they have to pay and so on, that it, your premiums go up. And so there would be all kinds of mechanisms in a free society where the primary person who loses, if it's right, like if it's right that for the average person, it's rational to get the vaccine, then the people who don't, they're the ones who lose and they lose in various ways. And so the, in that context, there's not a reason for government to mandate this. The only kind of context in which there's government power is when someone's threatening you. It's not to prevent the person from harming themselves or doing something that the government thinks is irrational, even if the government is right. That I mean, people do irrational things in all kinds of ways. But the same thing applies to in regard to nutrition and diet. There are people who do. Um, so I think there's still a lot unknown about proper diet and so. But there's things known about what is you probably shouldn't do this and you shouldn't drink eight cans of soda a day and just eat potato chips and so there's things known about what is damaging and yet people can do it they should be free to do it and it's not an issue of the government to mandate it you only start to think about it if the person is a threat to you or and this is the system we live in today they're going to impose costs on you because the more irrational they act they're gonna be more prone to disease and you have to pay for it in, in a sense when it's collectivized and socialized. So it's fair to say that the, the government's, the context in which government would, would rightly step in is if you're threatening the, the health of someone else, like it's highly contagious, highly deadly and hard to capture. And so, so in that context, it's what the person, I mean, maybe this is where it comes well, you need quarantine the person rather than maybe also inoculate yeah. them. But the first step would be just take extract them from a con from society so that they can't threaten other people's health. Yes, I think it is in that kind of case. It's not that you force the person to be vaccinated. You isolate them and quarantine them when 
it's identified that they're carrying this and you can do it for as long as they're carrying this. And that of course would serve as an incentive to get vaccinated if the possibility that you're gonna be quarantined if you actually contract this and now are a potential spreader of it. Um, but so in the, in the paper that I wrote on this, I list, I think a number of things that I think are relevant to thinking about when a person's a sufficient threat in the context of infectious disease. So carrying uh, and spreading an infectious disease, when a person's a sufficient threat that it warrants government action. So, and that means coercive action. And in this case, though, it is true that the person who is not vaccinated and, and uh, gets the SARS virus and has COVID-19 is, is, is spreading is a, a, a spreader of the virus does pose a threat, even to people who are vaccinated. It does increase your chances. As we said earlier, the vaccines are not 100%, but I don't think the threat is sufficient um, that it would warrant quarantining these people in the same way that someone who walks around with the flu, um, even for people who have the flu vaccine, that person is an increased threat compared to the person uh, who doesn't have the flu virus and isn't spreading it. But that doesn't mean you can quarantine everybody who has the flu virus. So, but this is the kind of thing that would really need to be codified into law mm -hmm. of when a person is a sufficient threat that he can be quarantined. And one of the elements of it is the issue of is a vaccine available? And available means sort of includes at what cost? If, I mean, if a vaccine was $5,000, such that it's understandable that a lot of people wouldn't be vaccinated, that's different than if it's um, uh, a, ch a cheap vaccine that basically everybody can afford. So we're at a fork here. Should we take some questions or did you want to play the clip that we had in the queue from Ayn Rand? You, do you want to set that up or should we go to some questions and come back? Um, well, I think we should actually, what we should do, because you brought up that there's, I, I forget how you put it, sort of edge cases. Um, mm -hmm. In the, I think that's important. It, it, there, there's gray area here, but what's important is it's gray area created by the government. Um, so we've uh, talked about this a little bit like outside of the podcast, that things like state-run schools and universities having mandates, and it, it can be a statewide mandate that if for children to go to public, and I, I think in some states it's public or private schools, they have to be have these vaccines or be inoculated in this way. And there's the kind of blurring that I think you're bringing up is it's a private public blurring or a government versus uh, private free citizens acting. And then how to think about when this is mandated, is it coercive or not? And you could say, well, it's, but it's just like an individual school doing it. And shouldn't they be able to make this kind of decision that they want kids have to be vaccinated if they're coming to the school? And it, 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 there's in our, what Ayn Rand called the mixed economy art today, there's always this kind of issue, but the fundamental is it's created by the government. Um, it's not inherent in sort of social life. And so, yeah, if you want to talk a little bit more about that, I think it, that's a good thing. And then we could go to questions. Yeah, and I, and I guess the, just to emphasize what, the, what I think of as the blurring. So if you go to the neighborhood school that's funded by taxes, that's a, it's a government-run institution, and that's one kind of school. And if you go to a private school, then it's a private enterprise. There's no, let's say there's no government su subsidies or anything like that. The, the, you can tell those apart, but what I think it gets even blurrier is when you get into higher education, because so much of higher education, even officially private institutions, a lot of their funding for research and for various contracts comes from government sources. And in addition to that, there are various restrictions that come with those and, and obligations that you have to meet if you're accepting funds or if you're accepting certain kind of government grants or loans that students are receiving. All of these enmesh private institutions in government uh, restrictions. So in effect, 
some when you can you can say well i want to go to this university because it's private well it's it's private in in many important respects but in many functional respects it is highly regulated and highly controlled by the state and so if that institution is is imposing a certain requirement for you to attend it's not the same as if it were completely free and requiring you to have whatever vaccine it is that they think you should have in attending so i i think there are unseen ways in which government influence and government uh, power is enacted through seemingly private entities. And I think higher ed is the, the, the chief example where it's, it's blurred. So the article that I mentioned by Aaron Carroll in the New York Times, he's emphasizing that 500 colleges and universities around the country are requiring their students to show up with proof of vaccination for COVID-19. and you could say, well, how many of those are private? Well, even those private ones are hardly, you can't really distinguish them as private because then it becomes, well, is this really in effect a government mandate enacted through seemingly private means? So I think that the, I, I agree with your point. This, this is inevitable when you get this meshing of government in, involvement in various institutions and practices. And, and a lot of it is just not known. I think you might have more experience of higher education and academia, but just the amount of, of government grants and, and subsidies and scholarships and, and so forth that flows in, uh, it's just, I don't think it's visible to people. Uh, and I think it colors policies that you might not see if the institution were completely privately funded and privately controlled. Yes, and it's, impossible i think it's impossible even for the parties involved to know all the strings that are actually attached to the government funding um because some of those you only find out in effect after the fact that you do something the government doesn't like and then oh next year we're not getting as much funding it's and sometimes you can't even figure out like is it because we did something and if we reversed and said okay no all students have to be vaccinated would the government funding increase or was it for some other kind of reason that we didn't get funding and nobody really knows no one understands how the system is actually working because it's not an actual system this is part of Ayn Rand's point about a mixed economy it's it's the disintegration of things when it's when private voluntary decisions and often money should be governing things now it's the rule of force that is governing things and that's not a system that's more i mean one of the ways she put it it's gangs now in charge and you can't figure out how this is going to work and what how it really is working and what the rules are there aren't rules when you're being ruled by gangs it's it's you're replacing actual rules and principles more with whim and so you don't for the people involved in these kind like but, but they put it as the euphemism one of the euphemisms is public private partnerships and it's not a partnership it's like two companies or two individuals agreeing yeah well, let's start a law firm and we've got a partnership that's not what it is it's one side uh, can use force and the other side can't and that is not a partnership that is um at most it's you're dealing with a bully and you never quite know when you're dealing with a bully. Am I being bullied or I'm doing this for, because I think it's the right thing to do or am I doing it because I don't want to be bullied so this will get the bully off. And you don't know. Um, and this is how these kinds of things work. Um, and, and people think of it as, oh yeah, the government's just giving money. It's not setting the agenda, but it's impossible to give money and this kind of funny and not in various ways be actually influencing and setting the agenda. I think it'd be good if we if we try to get through some of the questions we've uh, yeah. we've received so far. There's a long queue of them. Uh, let me just address a couple quickly that are more comments, I guess, or I'll phrase one of them in the form of questions. One of the is a comment about a, the issue that we raised earlier in the conversation about the way in which the the socialization of healthcare, in particular. And then the collectivized perspective that people adopt in, in today's society because of all the controls, that there's a way in which someone else's decision impact you. And if they have a bad diet or if they're reckless with their health, you end up paying for it or you pay for it with your, your freedom. 
So one of the super chat comments we got was, uh, this is like Starnsville. This is how people come to hate each other. And so this is a reference to uh, um, part of the story in Atlas Shrugged. I won't say more about that for people who haven't read it, but definitely go read it. It's a fascinating uh, dramatization of a, of a situation which really takes that kind of collectivization and draws out some of the, the implications of it in a, in a powerful way. And I would say that I think it is true that the more collectivized a society becomes, the more people, it, it, it doesn't necessarily create the kind of resentment that we can identify, but I think it definitely amplifies it and, and feeds it. So I, I, just, I, I noticed this when I was growing up in the United Kingdom, a very socialized and collectivized society. And you definitely got this sense that um, there was a kind of resentment of some people for, well, look at you, you're the drain on the NHS, the National Health Service, look at the way you're behaving and that, but multiplied across all sorts of things. Like you're having so many children, you're getting child benefits from the government. I'm paying for that and I don't have children. Look at all the children you're sending to school. I don't have children, you're, I'm paying for your children to go to university. So you get this sort of perspective of, it's, it is, it feels like a zero sum because their benefit comes from you and it's, it, it's much more visible and the, the consequences I think do generate that kind of resentment. Uh, so let, let me tie this to the other comment we got also from Super Chat. Thank you for that support. Uh, let me read it out. Having to pay your own medical expenses if you get sick is a good incentive to get vaccinated and an incentive to take care of your health in general. I think this goes to your point on car that we have so many distortions in the healthcare system in general because it's so controlled and socialized that I, I, I think people's responsibility for their lives is, I mean, it's limited and it also disincentivizes being responsible because you, you're going to say, well, if I show up in an emergency room, they have to treat me. So, you know, I can, I don't have to think about what the consequences are going to be. And I think there's this kind of mentality is multiplied uh, in other areas, but do you, did you want to comment on that particular thing in context of vaccines? Yeah, so uh, I think it, it's true um, that if you have to pay for your own medical expenses, you take your the decisions involved in your health more seriously uh, because the the repercussions are much more obvious and and felt and experienced. It, but it's a it's a wider phenomenon than that. Like that's an instance of what it would mean to have freedom in medicine. But just think. Um, so what we call health insurance today is not health insurance. It's I mean when you go and to the doctor and every routine thing is paid for by your insurance. It's not insurance. It's like if you went to the uh, every time you filled up your car with gas. You, your car insurance paid for it. You wouldn't, nobody would even occur to them. Like, why is my car insurance not paying for my gas? Car insurance is for the, um, it's to, to mitigate risks like of an accident, injury, not day-to-day -day activity. And health insurance would be, you'd be paying for a lot of things of routine medical care and for various other things like you get cancer and so on. You would have insurance for that in a free market. But the insurance companies would have all kinds of incentives to say, like, if they really have the data and they specialize in collecting and analyzing data, that um, if you're not vaccinated, your risks are quite a bit higher. Your risks for that we're going to have to pay are quite a bit higher. We're increasing premiums on you. And they could give it, like, you can imagine them giving a date to their customers saying, okay, if you are not vaccinated by then, by this date, you no longer have coverage for this. Like you can risk it and get it, but we're, your, your coverage is disappearing for this. This is a condition of the coverage. Um, you can imagine hospitals doing this. And like imagine how, if hospital, you brought emergency rooms. Imagine if hospitals could say, as of the end of August, if you don't, uh, aren't vaccinated, we're not treating you for COVID. You're on your own. Um, and that would incentivize people. And, but incentivize here is, is not the kind of right term. It's if you allow other people to make voluntary decisions, then a person has to think about it. Like I can't force them to treat me. These are the conditions on which the person says they'll treat me now. And do I wanna meet these conditions? And I get to decide, but I don't get to place the cost on other people. I get to decide 
and live with my decision, not force other people to live with my decision and bail me out in some kind of way. So a free society encourages, it can't mandate it um, because it's chosen, but it encourages people in the context of their lives to be rational. And a free market in healthcare in all kinds of ways would encourage people to be rational about their healthcare and would allow other people like insurance companies and hospitals to also be rational in the way they're operating. And it would just look so different from what we have today. Let's take this question because it goes directly to the topic of mandates. So how is the government justified in imposing mask mandates on airplanes as well as government buildings now that we are no longer in a pandemic? I mean, I don't think it's justified. So it, it's, I mean, it's certainly not justified for airlines and to tell private companies and why airplanes and not other things. Um, uh, it's not justified to, 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 to do this. Uh, airplane as a private company could say, we require either you wear a mask or show us you've got proof of vaccination. Um, it could do that and it would make clear to passengers and so on, that's the conditions. And some people might say, yeah, I only wanna fly on an airline that does this. And other people would say the hell with this and fly on airlines that aren't doing this. And there would be competition in regard to that. Um, on, for government buildings, um, there is an issue for government services and so on to think about what they can require. Uh, I think again, and this it relates to the issue of the, can they does the government have the so I think it has a power to quarantine people of infectious disease, but that power has to be defined and delimited. But if it were the, in the context in which um, you could quarantine. I think you could also, if there's evidence again for that masks are effective and so on, require masks. I don't, again, I don't think we're at that stage anymore, at least for most government services that, uh, that you get vaccinated is sufficient protection from if you're going to the DMV. Well, I mean, there shouldn't be a DMV, but if you're going to something, oh, let's take something uh, better. If you're going to uh, court, um, I don't think now in this context, it can mandate masks, but I could imagine earlier in the pandemic that it, it says like, this is a requirement. Um, we don't know enough about the disease. Masks seem to protect people. There's not mass vaccination yet. Um, and th this is a requirement, but it has to be objective just as it's power to quarantine has to be objectively established and applied. All right, let's turn to this. Uh, we have just a few minutes. Let's see if we can get a few more questions in uh, quickly. Thank you for all these questions. We appreciate you connecting with us. So one question is, uh, do you think the government involvement in vaccine distribution is supporting a choice not to get vaccines, uh, turning the reason into, quote, because the government says so, end quote, rather than the survival value of the vaccine? I, I'm not sure I, I fully get the drift of the question, but if the issue is, people are, are reluctant to trust government in, in, because of its involvement and its involvement in the vaccines is that clouding people's view of, well, I don't want to be involved in the vaccines now because the government's touched it. I, I mean, I think the vaccines were privately developed. They're tested privately. And there's such a amount of evidence about their um, uh, safety and, and efficacy that I think the government's role in distributing it is more I mean, it's unnecessary, I think, and it's also a hindrance to its efficient distribution. I, I think, and I think it's incidental to the value of the vaccines. Now, if people have trouble seeing that, or if they're tripped up by it, then I think it's important to distinguish what role government has had here. I know it, it had a, a role in spurring some investments and so forth, but I think fundamentally it's a private uh, achievement. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I, I suspect part of the question, and I, I suspect this is right, but to a small extent, like this explains a small number of people who are not getting vaccinated, that there is a kind of American reaction. If the government tells me I have to do it, I'm not doing it. Um, and it, it, in many contexts, that's a healthy, as so, sort of as an emotional reaction, that's a healthy thing. In this case, 
as you're saying, there's ample evidence that it, whether or not the government's telling you to get a vaccine, there's ample evidence for the efficacy and um, safety of the vaccines that you should, you, it's, it's in the end stupid to, if the government's telling you something not to do it any more than if the government's telling you, you do it. It's, you should think about it. And if you have reason to do it, who cares what the government's saying? Um, but I think there, there probably is a small element of that in America. They rebel against an overweening government. So maybe we'll make this the last question. It circled back to one of the points we were discussing in the context of mandates and the way you characterize the difference between a private condition of trade or a private relationship and a government mandate is that superficially they're both saying take it or leave it, but in the context of the government, the or leave it looks very different. It's coercive, there are penalties and so forth. So the question is asking, can you relate this more to your article uh, about infectious diseases and how it, it, one should approach them in a free society in, in sort of the proper context for the pandemic? I'm not sure I fully understand the question. So uh, Alani should jump in if you think there's something that I'm not addressing. The, the, the article, yeah, is about the government's role in a pandemic. And that essentially, essentially means the role for government coercion. When we're talking about government's role, we're talking the government is the instrument for using force in a society. Nobody else can use force apart from specialized self-defense context where the government, you can't call the police, you don't have time and so on. But absent that, the government has a monopoly on force. It's the only institution that is legally recognized as, yeah, when you use force uh, and you're using it as specified by the constitution and our whole set of laws, that's legitimate. When anybody else uses force, it's not legitimate. and so it, it's, you have to distinguish between what would likely happen in a pandemic as a result of private actions. And private actions would be in the context of people thinking, like, how severe is this infectious disease actually? Uh, how contagious is it? What are the treatments actually like? Are they really not very effective? Or what people would think about all these kinds of things to decide their level of risk and the kinds of precautions and preventative measures they would take. That's not the role of government. That's not the role of coercion. The role of coercion is when there's actual carriers of an infectious disease that is of sufficient severity that it's deemed, um, like, like it's lawful to think, yeah, we can quarantine this person until they're no longer infectious and no longer a threat to other people. That's the role for government. And then you have to specify that that's its role and its only role. And then you have to specify the conditions under which that role is performed objectively. Yeah, I think that, that was the main thing I was hoping you would, you would uh, bring out in, in response to that. So let's, uh, let's wind up. So thanks uh, for all those questions. We didn't get to all the questions and I, I, I hope we can fit some of them in uh, when we have our special Q&A episode coming up on July 21st. So I encourage everyone, we'll, we'll, we always save the questions from these that we don't get to and we try to, to weave them in when we have or sometimes they trigger new episodes for us. So if you have a question, general Q&A on July 21st, you can send your questions to newideal at aynrand.org. We'd love to hear from you and they'll be focused on objectivist philosophy. But if you have questions on application, we'll try to fit those in. There were some today as well. Let me also recommend some resources for you. So we were just talking about Ankar's article, a pro-freedom approach to infectious disease. And uh, we have a, a short URL for you. It's bit.ly slash freedom hyphen infectious. And another article by my colleague, uh, Ben Bayer is titled The Unscientific Un-American Ethics of Vaccine Distribution, which has been central to the conversation we've been having today about mandates and people's uh, decisions whether to get them or not. And that you can find, we have a short URL for that. It's bit.ly slash unscientific vaccine ethics. And all, all of these you can find as well on newideal.einrand.org. You can find all of our materials and our podcasts there as well. So those are some resources for you. And I would uh, tell you as well that we're going to have, as we often, often do every week, a clubhouse uh, meeting 
and the Ayn Rand Clubhouse. Clubhouse is a, an audio platform that is growing now. I think you can get it both on I, iOS and Android. We'd love for you to drop in and have a conversation with us. There is one scheduled for July 15th at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. And I think the topic this week is, it should be fun. It's what is your Ayn Rand story? How did you get involved with Ayn Rand? How did you first read her? And we're hoping to connect with you and, and hear more about that. And that is Clubhouse for this week. I told you about the Q&A event coming up next week. And I think that's everything for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be here next time. And if you're um, watching us on YouTube, please subscribe, click on the bell to get notifications, like the video, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear, see what you have to say. And you can always send us a comment or feedback or suggestions to our email, which is newideal at einrand.org. We read everything, we try to respond to many of them, but they all feed into our thinking and planning for these podcasts. So thanks for being with us today. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.